The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. The latest trends and hottest topics, love and sex, handled honestly and with passion. Here's Dr. Lori, CJAD 800. Welcome to the Friday edition of Passion, uh, where I share some of the latest stories and research that I've come across in this past week. I've got lots of great uh, stories, some pretty funny and some more serious topics. And of course, your input. And I do want to share with you and and maybe continue a little bit the discussion we had last night uh, about masculinity, because a lot of people weighed in after the show ended. And I want to just give them them a voice as well. But first... Time to check out our inbox. Your calls and texts are always welcome. Connect with Passion now at 514-790-0800 or 514-800. So let me answer just a couple of questions here, and then I'll get into some of the stories. And by the way, you can always email me, uh, laurie at drlaurie.com, to get your questions answered. So this person on the text said, what can you tell us about the Mona Lisa touch for vaginal atrophy. Now, I'm not uh, personally familiar with it, except that uh, I've heard some of our doctors who have uh, been guests on the show talk about this. Uh, so the Mona Lisa Touch is a basically a, a laser machine that is used to treat um, all kinds of things. And I, I pulled out the FDA uh whatever it was intended for, and it was approved for uh, indications that include uh, gynecological applications. I'm reading it from the text, specifically incision, excision, ablation, vaporization, and coagulation of the body soft tissues in medical specialties, including aesthetic dermatology and plastic surgery, podiatry, otolaryngology, gynecology, neurosurgery, orthopedics, general and thoracic surgery, uh, dental and oral surgery, and genitourinary surgery. So it's used not just for vaginal stuff, even though people are making the association with the vagina. So what what does it do for uh, for the vagina? Basically, um, this is uh, is meant for use on postmenopausal women who have developed vaginal atrophy. Vaginal atrophy results from a lack of estrogen. So the tissue is no longer elastic uh, and it, uh, it can shrink. It can cause vaginal itching, dryness, bladder issues, coital pain. So what this is meant to do is it's a, a laser frequency device that is inserted into the vagina and it's it pulses out this this laser, and it's it is said to restore uh, hydration, nourishment by stimulating or activating uh, the fibers in the vagina, basically. So it 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 basically stimulates the vaginal tissues so that they regenerate. So this is the claim. I haven't seen many studies that were not. Uh, funded by the people who make it or use it. So it's very difficult to, to tell you in terms of uh, uh, like a peer-reviewed uh, studies that are uh, 
that I would consider non-biased in this, but doesn't mean they're not out there. I just haven't come across any. So if you find any, let me know. Uh, but some people, uh, the doctors that I have spoken to who have used it, say that uh, it does it works for some some women. What I wouldn't recommend is that we use this for uh, necessarily for vaginal rejuvenation. Like if you don't have an issue and you want to go in there for, I don't know, I, I wouldn't know what you would use it for. But really, it's it's what it's used medically when there is. A problem. Does that mean that some people use it cosmetically? Uh, for sure. But it, it doesn't, has not been, uh, I don't believe, approved for cosmetic stuff. So I, that you would have to, uh, to check a, a little bit, go into it a little bit deeper. All right. One question here. I started my sexual life, but I always have my period with one month free. So, uh, for example, I had my period one month, but the next one was two months later. And that free month means anxiety for me and my boyfriend also. So I'm sure the anxiety comes about, uh, being pregnant in between the, those, uh, months and, and worrying in the month that you're not getting your period, but it, it's not unusual, uh, to have a cycle that isn't all that regular. So I totally get the anxieties, uh, about getting, uh, getting pregnant, but you really should see your doctor in the situation like this in order to discuss your cycle, uh, with your doctor. And at this point, your doctor may suggest some kind of, uh, hormonal contraceptive to regulate, uh, the period. In the meantime, always, always use a condom. It is very effective when used properly, and this will protect you uh, from pregnancy and most sexually transmitted infections. So you must use some form of birth control. The withdrawal method is not a method of birth control. It is a good method of parenthood, not a great method of birth control. Uh, I want to just respond to some of the um, the text or share at least some of the text that I got, uh, following yesterday's conversation, which I found absolutely fascinating and interesting to hear everybody's point of view. But we were trying to answer the question, like what is masculinity, uh, today and, uh, got this email that says, I'm a very masculine man. My dad taught me to hunt and build things. I'm not afraid to cry or ask for help. I open doors for ladies and help anyone who needs it. I know when to stand my ground or to speak up for someone that is being bothered in public. I'll be the one to speak out. I'm in touch with my feelings and not afraid to show them. I'm sensitive to others' feelings and have a great deal of empathy. I'm also a tough guy that will stand up to bullies. Thank God I'm a country boy. Thanks, Mom and Dad. So Mom and Dad taught you uh, very, very well, clearly. Uh, And this is what we were talking about, the toxic masculinity. Uh, somebody else was commenting, there was a, a fellow uh, who called in who seemed to express a lot of the the uh, characteristics when I was talking about toxic masculinity, basically people who see the, the gender roles as very divided and very specific and as if that's completely innate and this is just the way the men are and this is the way women are uh, and doesn't take into account any kind of, uh, of change or anything. Um, so that I found that very interesting. 
Uh, then a couple more texts. Lori, just tell your caller that simply our societal notions of masculinity are simply very restricted as compared to what it truly means to be a whole person where gender is but a mere aspect of it all. And I love that. I think learning to see uh, us as all humans, regardless of gender, orientation, or anything, uh, I think is really important rather than pigeonhole people into having to perform or or be or uh, exhibit certain characteristics in order for them to feel uh, secure. So I'll feel good as a man if I exhibit those extreme uh, traits of masculinity. And that's where we kind of go into that um, territory of what is has now been commonly uh, termed uh, toxic masculinity. That's not all masculinity. Believe me, this is what the argument <laughs> we were having. This is not all men. This is not what we are uh, talking about. Coming up in the program, and tell you about uh, this new contraption to check for testicular cancer without having to look at your doctor in the eye, and a penis lock for your guy. Uh, what would you say if your partner got you this penis lock? Your relationship's on the line. Connect with Dr. Lori now. 514-790-0800. Passion. News Talk Radio. CJAD 800. I want to share a couple more texts in relation to what is masculinity. I love this one. Masculinity equals question mark. <laughs> and that's what a lot of people were expressing. It's like, what is it today? If it's not this, that, what is it? it there's confusion around it now. Uh, this text writes, One hard thing about being a man today is that women expect to have careers as solid as ours, but they still expect us to be the breadwinners. It basically disqualifies low-income men as worthy partners for any woman. I'm not sure that that's actually uh, the case. I think that many women today do not expect the man to be the breadwinner. They want to be able to stand on their own two feet and join forces with someone else. The reality is that once they have uh, children, it is often the women who do stay home and do expect their partners to sustain the family while they raise the children, at least for a short time anyhow, until or if they need decide on daycare or what have you. So it kind of puts us in that role um, kind of necessarily, especially if you're breastfeeding and such, and so tie, keeps you tied to the baby. Um, so I don't think that that's what women expect. I think women do expect to have careers, uh, uh, yes, and be paid as much as men and, and all of that. Um, but those same women who want those careers are not looking for partners who will be the breadwinner and they can sit and, and not work. So that I have not encountered, but if anybody else wants to comment on that, uh, please do. Uh, I find that women are trying to put men, uh, no, hold on a second. Let me find where it begins. Um, uh, I find that there's no way real definition of masculinity because it's constantly evolving. What some things people think is masculine may not be masculine to others. Now I find with all these Me Too movements that men have become the subservient and whenever a man opens his mouth, it's always wrong. I find that women are trying to put men into 
that role. But again, that's making quite a, a generalization that men have now become subservient or I don't know what other word you want to use with that, but, uh, or, or that he, a man cannot express himself because he's always wrong. That's taking things to, to me, to quite the, uh, quite the extreme. And someone else wants to know, uh, wants to talk about what is, uh, it says, funny musing, can we define toxic femininity too? So I looked it up. The, the Good Men Project is a, a great website. It's, it's called The Good Men Project, The Conversation No One Else Is Having. And they talked about, there was a great article about toxic masculinity on there, which I did share with you some of the stuff, but then did a follow-up because people were asking that question, like what is toxic uh, femininity? So they looked into it and this is what uh, this is what it says on the website toxic femininity is a self-destructive inwardly directed energy that sometimes but not always projects this inner pain upon others toxic femininity is a cry for help from someone who struggles with core survival issues such as self-worth self-acceptance and self-love somebody who for example, um, expresses a, a lot of bitterness, spite, jealousy, passive aggressiveness, clingy behavior. All those are manifestations of these feelings. So very different than what when we talk about uh, toxic masculinity, which is about gender roles, not necessarily about uh, about this. So uh, very interesting. Anyway, your thoughts always welcome on the show, of course. And if you have questions for me, even throughout the show, uh, feel free uh, to uh, to text me, 514-800. If you want to call in, it's 514-790-0800. Your voice can be heard tonight. So this is uh, something for you guys who are very uncomfortable having your testicles checked by your doctor. Are you uncomfortable with that? I'm just just curious. I mean, women go to the gynecologist, you know, all the time. <laughs> they get probed inside and out. Um, how do you feel when your doctor, be it a female or a male doctor, um, starts to feel around in your uh, testicles? So this thing out of New Zealand, I, th- I think it's ridiculous, but whatever. It's, call- it's called the testamatic. And it's being hailed as the world's first anonymous testicle checking station. Basically, a man goes in there. It's like a cabin. It looks almost like a like a phone booth or something. Uh, pulls the curtain around, drops his pants, and then the hand comes out and checks the testicles. Basically, it's a, there's a wall and a hole in the wall. And the hand, a gloved hand comes out and checks the testicles. Like... Okay, that's <laughs> the anonymous testicle checker. I, I I don't get it, but like why? Uh, first of all, testicular cancer in New Zealand is the most common cancer in young men, also very treatable if caught early enough. Um, 99% of cases are cured if detected at an early stage, which is why it's very, very, very important to teach young men uh, how to check themselves the same way that women check for uh, for lumps. 
So the urologist or whatever doctor's on the other side and the only contact is through a small hole in the wall. What does that remind you of? Exactly. So no eye contact, like gives a whole new meaning to the glory hole kind of thing, right? There's no, there's no glory, but there is a, a anonymous testicular exam. Do are, are guys so uncomfortable with that, that, that you would actually prefer to go into some little, uh, booth and just so that you do not make eye contact with your doctor. I, anyway, I don't get it. Uh, there is a penis lock that's out there. If you go online and just uh, Google penis lock so you can see the images, you will see this. There's, there's also a, a video uh, posted of it so that you, you can see. So basically it's a gadget supposedly for your cheating man is what it says. Uh, it looks like, um, uh, I don't know, some sort of microphone holder or some little sculpture of sorts. But basically, it is a metal penis lock that comes with a key. You keep it locked until you need to use it. When your man is out, his junk is locked up. And when he is home, you use the key to set it free. Then when he leaves the house, you lock it up and you don't have to worry about him cheating. If you have to go and get a penis lock for your partner, you have far bigger problems than that. Can you imagine? That would mean that what? So we'll get a, uh, uh, what's the equivalent for, what, what are those things for women? The, um, oh my God, I wish I, <laughs> my brain's fried, sorry. <laughs> um, the chastity belts, right? So you'd get a, what, with a key for women and one for, where's the trust? Like trust is the, is the core, is the foundation of relationships. You're going to go and introduce this to your partner. I want you to wear this. All right. Well, you're not building trust with that. Uh, Texture writes, uh, masculinity to me is males that respect womankind, whatever and whenever, women are around. So masculinity is about respect. I think humanity is about respect. I don't, it's femininity, masculinity. It has no gender respect and it shouldn't have any, uh, gender. This study, sex problems among middle-aged Canadians are common. And this to me, uh, begs the question, how often does your doctor talk to you about your sexuality? Our sexuality is linked to our quality of life. It could be uh, problems with sex, could be symptomatic, could be symptoms of other problems. How often or how many of you have had their doctor ask you, how is your sex life? How are you functioning Sexually, I ask this question, especially when I uh, talk in front of groups of uh, middle-aged and older people, even older age people, and very few hands go up. Like in a room of a hundred, I've got like, yeah, maybe three hands go up where their doctors ask them about their uh, sex lives. And I find that quite problematic, as do they, because they would like their doctors to ask 
Are we uh, making assumptions that if you're older, you don't, ha- you shouldn't want sex, or you should give up on sex, and therefore we don't ask because it shouldn't be important because that's what that's the message that comes through. And I get it. Maybe it's a discomfort thing. Maybe it's uh, they don't have enough time, so they don't want to open a can of worms. But frankly, to me, when you're doing like a wellness exam, like a yearly examination, this should be part of the questions that are asked. Do you experience pain with intercourse? How are your erections? Uh, all these questions. The problem is, is that the medical professionals are often not trained in sexuality, which sounds crazy, doesn't it? To me, it sounds really crazy that this is, there's not like one entire course on sexuality. And I know there isn't. I've spoken to doctors who've gone to medical school recently in the past, and there's, there may be one lecture. I've often gone in and talked to the residents and the interns and given them the uh, like a, just a, a, an overview of sexual problems, and they tell me, this is it. This is what we get. And that's a problem. So researchers found that nearly 40% of women and almost 30% of men between the ages of 40 and 59 face some challenges in their uh, sex lives. And this was a national survey done by a colleague of mine, uh, Robin Milhausen, at the University of Guelph, Ontario, of 2,400 people. The study found low desire vaginal dryness and difficulty achieving orgasm to be challenges facing women and low desire and erectile and ejaculation problems are the common challenges facing older men. So we're talking about a good chunk of people who are experiencing some challenges. And often this is medical at this age, medical, and which could be helped medically. And yet, studies shows that very few ask those questions and that's uh, a real problem coming up we'll talk about uh, stress how does that uh, damage your sex life and a really sad but uh, funny well funny not funny haha but uh, about a woman who finds out her hus- her fiance was cheating goes ahead and marries him and you won't believe what she does at the wedding. We'll talk about that once we check in with uh, our newsroom here on CJD 800. The following program contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. It's sex out loud, and you're welcome to listen in. Passion on CJD 800. Now let me tell you the story of a gutsy, gutsy bride, and you tell me if you would have done the same thing or what you would have done in this situation. An Australian bride has revealed the lengths she went to on her wedding day to drop her cheating fiancé after receiving evidence of his infidelity hours before the wedding. She's anonymous. Her name doesn't appear anywhere. It was supposed to be the happiest day of her life, but instead it was the end of her relationship. She received an anonymous text during her bachelorette party, containing what she says was clear evidence of the cheating, including selfies and screenshots of her fiancé with someone else. She says, there was no questioning the legitimacy of these messages. I just knew. The messages described her fiancé's apparent sexual relationship with another woman 
in great detail. There's a lot of bad words. I won't, uh, I won't give the details exactly. Uh, her friends wanted to confront the man instantly, but instead the bride waited until her wedding day dawned and marched up the aisle to out him in front of his friends and family. As he saw my face, he knew this was not an ecstatic woman on her big day, but he had no idea what was coming. I arrived at the front of the room, took a big breath, faced our friends, our parents, and I told them the truth. Her fiancé left the room, his friends and family quickly following. The bride says she announced they will still be holding a party, but instead of a wedding, it would be a celebration of honesty. It was certainly not the wedding day I had planned, but to our credit, it was one hell of a party, which of course the <laughs> groom-to-be did not attend, I assume, nor did his family. I w would love to know how it all played out after that. That's a crazy story. That's something to me uh, that would take a, a lot of courage to stand up there it's humiliating for her, for him, for everybody involved, uh, and to let it go this far. If I was the parents paying for this wedding, oof, would I be mad? Uh, what do you think? 514-800. Uh, comment on the penis key story. Dr. Lori, a penis key really, really comes on. If it comes on at that stage, it's too late. Oh, yeah. If you're, if you're at the stage in your relationship where you're telling your partner you need to wear this uh, this penis lock and I hold the key, uh, yeah, you can bet they have uh, bigger problems at this stage of the game and it's a relationship that will probably not last. Does this come as any surprise to you that stress damages our sex life? Nah. Uh, there was a survey done in the UK of over 2,000 adults about their attitudes to sex and relationships. Stress was rated as a problem in the bedroom by more people than any other factor. 45% of the individuals surveyed said that stress was a big problem. And it's true. We see a lot. I see a lot of it. I know my colleagues see a lot of anxiety issues, uh, a lot of uh, depression, a lot of uh, like work burnout, um, overwork, like working far too many hours uh, and combine that with sex, they don't go together, unfortunately. Uh, other factors highlighted by the respondents as having a negative impact on sex included uh, physical health problems, mental health issues, and having children. Of course, speak to parents of young children and they will tell you having children puts a damper on your sex life, no question. So you need to find ways uh, to connect. And that's a problem I see all the time, unfortunately. But it is a, it's part of life. It's part of those, one of those uh, stages of life. And uh, it, the, life is like a bunch of waves and you have to ride the waves. You're not always going to have sex, uh, the same way, the same frequency from the beginning of your relationship all the way through. If some people are fortunate to, to be able to do that, that's great. But the more, most of the people I see and most people that I know, it is never that constant over the, the long, uh, the long haul. So you definitely have to 
accept the ebbs and flows and respect and have compassion for the fatigue and stress levels and, and other issues that come up uh, with your partner. But talking about it is very important. Making sure that you can communicate and that you find other ways to connect because often couples who stop having sex because of the stress, fatigue, and all of that stuff, uh, natural things that happen to most of us, when they don't connect anymore physically, and I, I don't mean full-on sex, but at least uh, affectionately and are able to um, find ways to be close, uh, even if they're not having sex, uh, fare better. Uh, but in my office, oftentimes I just get frustrated people who want more and whose partners feel pressured, which creates a cycle of just moving away from it. So, um, if make sure you communicate about it and talk about it with compassion and kindness and patience. And if that, if it doesn't work to improve things, then there is help. There is definitely help out there. Another woman does an outrageous thing. See, the woman who outed her fiancé at the wedding, I kind of have some respect for her. This woman who did what she did, which was really outrageous, I cannot, do not have respect for what she did. As outrageous as it is, and it's just, it's stupidity. Sometimes outrageous things are gutsy things, courageous things, and sometimes they're just idiotic. Uh, this woman removes her belly button as a gift to her boyfriend. I didn't even know you could remove a belly button unless it was an Audi uh, belly button. What do you do with an any belly button? How do you remove that? You go dig deep and pull. Like, it just seems so, so gross and so painful. This is what she wanted to do to show her love for her partner, gifting her him with this removal of that body part and sticking it in a baggie and 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 handing it to him. This woman's from Mexico, twenty three years old, and she did this. This was about three years ago. Now she's they're writing about it and a decision she says she now regrets. And guess what? You think they're still together? No. No, they're not. Uh, and she she said she did this because she was rebelling, or at least the if you see pictures of her, you'll you'll understand maybe her rebellion. She's uh, pierced a lot of body modification stuff as a as a rebellion to her difficult uh, relationship she had with her parents apparently. Um, but still, this is, goes beyond like tattooing and, 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 and piercings, removing a body part to give to your partner. Like that's worse than tattooing his or her name on your body to me. You, how do you replace a belly button? A tattoo can be removed, but how do you replace a belly button? Anyway, she suffered for a long time, apparently, uh, it was traumatic on her body. She got, uh, her wound was infected. She suffered from a lot of pain. She spent many, many days in bed. She could not stretch. She could not move. She could not laugh. All of this so she could gift her boyfriend uh, her belly button. And now he owns her belly button 
and they're not together anymore. Idiotic or what? Like completely idiotic. Is online dating hurting your chances to find love? Is there a problem because there are just too many fish in the sea? I'd love to get your thoughts on that one as well. When we come back. Straight talk that's all inclusive. Passion with Dr. Lori. News Talk Radio. CJAD 800. Are you an online dater? Do you use Tinder, Bumble? Uh, what's the other one? Uh, uh, there's another one too, a new one that everybody's uh, using also. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of these apps now and a whole bunch of different dating sites. But what is happening here? Are we happier having this many choices or not? Well, research shows that um, having all of these choices actually make us less happy. What happened before online dating? We had to meet people. We had to connect with people. We had to go find those people. Uh, we had to do that even though we spend day, our days working. So we had to make the time to do that. We got set up. We had blind dates, all of that. Uh, but that wasn't always so easy or at least uh, efficient in terms of time. So online dating or dating apps solves a lot of these, uh, a lot of these problems. You don't have to work so hard to find someone you at all. And sometimes the websites do it for you. The dating websites do it for you. You don't, it, it's not a question of swiping anyway. You just, uh, they match you up and present you with, these are the people that you should go out on a date with. But what's the problem here? The problem is there are too many choices and sometimes more choices are worse when it comes to dating. What do you think? You like the idea of having so many choices or it, can it get frustrating, uh, disappointing? What is it? Research does show that too many choices can lead to what's called choice overload when the sheer quantity of choices leads people to be less satisfied with the choice they end up making. And because we have so many options, we can start regretting the choice we made thinking, well, wait a minute, maybe there's better, maybe there's better looking, better fit, better, 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 better. There's always someone else you can swipe to, right? So they, there was an interesting study and I'll share with you what these researchers did, but they presented participants with either six or 24 attractive prospective partners using what online date or dating sites used. Um, and one week after making their choice, the participants who chose from the larger set of options were significantly less satisfied with their choice. So imagine if that, and that's only 24 options that have an effect on your satisfaction. What about the endless stream of potential partners that are available on dating sites? So this perception that there could be better things out, better people out there, better choices out there could actually be preventing people from being happy with an otherwise satisfying match. So you might say, okay, this person gets me, we get along, they're funny, we like the same things, but could there be someone else 
who fits me even better? There might be, but maybe not, right? But all of this, the, this, this unknown and the pull of this undermines a potentially healthy and very happy relationship. And I know this has been the experience of many people. So some solutions to this would be to, uh, limit the number of choices that you allow yourself to consider. Some people spend hours a day on, on Tinder, for example. I've seen people like all, all day picking up their phone. I don't know how many times a day, how many times they swipe. And then if they're done with that and no, no new matches come up, they'll go on to another one of those sites and continue swiping elsewhere. It's like endless. The other thing, so limit yourself, limit the number of choices that you'll make in a day, for example, or a week. Um, stop looking as soon as you connect with someone, just connect with someone. I think that we often like, don't look at the person in front of us, even though we've connected with them and there's all kinds of things positive. If our mind is going to, well, wait a second, maybe there's something else, then you're not fully engaged in this and fully exploring the relationship that you're in. And that could make people unhappy. Here's another study that I found interesting being a firstborn child myself, firstborn children more likely to learn about sex from parents. So birth order plays a role in how children learn about sex. According to this study, especially, uh, for boys. So researchers found that firstborn children were more likely to report parental involvement in sex education than later born children, uh, a pattern which was especially pronounced in, uh, in men. So if you were a firstborn boy, you probably had more sex education, probably due to more parental involvement. And if you were the last born of say, I don't know how many kids, like a whole slew of kids, you probably got much less of that kind of attention. And maybe you got your sex education from your siblings. That's also, um, a possibility. But the study's authors say that a better understanding of the relationship between birth order and parental involvement in learning about sex could help to improve the design and delivery of sex education, uh, programs, although they don't really quite say, uh, how it is, but anyhow, just some of the numbers here, 48% of firstborn women and 37% of firstborn men reported discussing sex with a parent, uh, at age 14, as opposed to 40% of middle born women and 29% of middle born men. Is it that we have less time for the children that come after number one? Um, I don't know, something, uh, something to, to be said about that kind of birth order. Last, uh, thing I want to share with you. Let me see. Uh, another study that I want, this is, uh, uh, a study that was reported at the last conference that I was at by, uh, um, Kristen Silver at the university of Akron, how frequent is sexual perpetration in, uh, college men. There was a systematic review of reported prevalences from 2000 to 2017. So basically looking at a bunch of different studies, it's a meta analysis. It's called, they looked at 75 independent samples that included, 
uh, close to 25,000 participants who completed measures of sexual perpetration. Uh, so they say, although approximately one in four college women report experiencing sexual violence and most report being victimized by their male peers, the rate of sexual perpetration in college men is actually unknown because a lot of people don't uh, report it. So the average rate of any level of sexual violence perpetration across studies was 25%, which actually fits with the numbers. Uh, the prevalence of rape perpetration uh, ranged from 0.6 to 33%. So this is across all uh, the studies. Uh, and they concluded the reported frequency of sexual perpetration is highly related to the measurement strategy used, and there is uh, greater variability in methods. So it's hard to make one big generalized statement because so many people use different measures uh, to do this. But what we do know is that it is common in college men. And so we need more and more education. It always comes back to more education anyhow. And always, and it circles back to the beginning of the week when we started talking about uh, toxic uh, masculinity and what happened in Toronto and all of that. So we've come uh, full circle tonight. Sorry to end not on such a light note, but nonetheless. Uh, thank you all for spending your time with me. Really, really do appreciate your listenership, of course. Uh, thanks to our technical producer, Dave Simon, our passion researcher, Linda DeLisi. You can connect with me on social media at Dr. Lori Batito or through my website, drlori.com. Coming up next on CJD, the CTV National News. Have a great rest of the evening, a fabulous weekend, and remember to live your life with passion.